Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host Hannah Chapman and I am your host Lauren Burke and this week we are going to talk about the poet Sarah Morgan Brian Piat. Is that right Piat? Yep that's right. Good. Piat was born in 1836 in Lexington, Kentucky. Shout out to our Kentucky friends and listeners. And she began publishing as a teenager. Piat published hundreds of poems in newspapers, magazines, anthologies, as well as 18 volumes of poetry. And yet neither of us have ever heard of her. True story. It was actually OSU Special Collections curator Jolie Braun that brought Piat to my attention a couple of months ago. I follow Jolie on Twitter and she posted an article entitled Rescued from Obscurity, Sarah Piat and the Larry Michaels Poetry Collection at the Ohio State University Library. This, of course, caught my attention because, as you all know, I am very interested in recovering lost women writers. So um, I went ahead and decided to read some of Piat's poetry. And then I very quickly became obsessed with her. And I just had to know all about her. So um, today, you'll be hearing an interview that I did with Jolie Braun and Professor Elizabeth Ranker, which is not only about Piat's life, work, and the recovery process at OSU, But it also speaks to some of the larger conversations that we've been having this season about who makes it into the canon and how and why particular women writers fall through the cracks. This interview has a little bit of everything, poetry analysis, literary detective work, comparisons to Emily Dickinson. So let's dive in. I'm Elizabeth Renker. I'm a professor in the English department at The Ohio State University. And I am really happy to be talking today about Sarah Piat, um, whom I started reading exactly 20 years ago. And I have never stopped. I've been working on her ever since. And um, also really happy to be here with my colleague, Jolie Braun, um, because she and I are working together on building a lot of um, projects related to the study of Piat here at the Ohio State University Libraries. I teach Piat all the time, almost every year. I publish on her and I am um, trying to build a lot of what I've called infrastructure for recovering Sarah and bringing her back to public awareness in the United States. So I'm Julie Braun and I'm the curator of modern literature and manuscripts um, at the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library. Um, And the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library is one of eight special collections on the campus. Um, And our focus is collecting, preserving, and providing access to literary and historical materials. Um, And we have everything from medieval manuscripts to contemporary novels and zines. Um, And so one of the collections that um, I've been working on with Elizabeth is our Sarah Piat Holdings. And we have archival materials, um, books and periodicals. And we're also actively working on building our digital collections related to her as well. So who is Sarah Piat, and uh, why have I never heard of her? Well, um, 
I can get us started on that question. And um, I am currently engaged in writing the first biography of Sarah Piat. And so I think that's maybe a useful thing to mention because um, as you know, when you meet people in your daily life, often um, someone in trying to get to know you asks, you know, what you do for a living and they ask about your job and so on. And when I mention I'm writing a biography of Sarah Piat, people often apologize and say, I'm sorry, I've never heard of her. And so I always, you know, stop and explain, there's really no, no need to apologize. One of the um, interesting things about writing about her and trying to bring her back into cultural awareness is that she was a famous celebrity poet during her life. She was born in 1836 uh, in Fayette County, Kentucky, and uh, she died in 1919 in New Jersey. She published actively many hundreds of poems in the United States and abroad for over 50 years. She is a voice and she was a public voice in her time who recorded major social and historical phenomena and fractures across the entire second half of the 19th century. And yet after her death, she completely fell into obscurity. Now in that sense, she's like many another woman writer. Uh, we're all living in an age when there has been a major cultural move toward recovering lost women. Um, this has happened in and out of the academy. It's, um, I graduated uh, from graduate school um, in 1991. It, it has been one of the two major cataclysms in my field of study during my career. The recovery of women writers literally changed everything about doing um, scholarship in 19th century America. Um, and so it's not surprising that Sarah disappeared. It's, it's sad, but it's not surprising. And so she's one of many women we're trying to bring back to attention. Um, but there were also reasons why Sarah is a unique voice and um, why it's important to talk about her career individually, in addition to acknowledging the fact that women writers more generally really were just expunged from literary history until a couple of decades ago. Jolie, when was the first time you became aware of Sarah Piat? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can comment specifically on her career, but I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I am someone who has graduate, undergraduate degrees in literature. I loved and studied 19th century poetry, Tennyson, Dickinson, the Brownings. I, I'd never heard of Sarah Piat before I came to OSU. Um, and I think my first encounter with her was actually attending um, one of Elizabeth's talks. I think it was at the Ohio History Connection and she was giving a talk about Sarah Piat. And I remember specifically her doing a reading of Piat's poem, Mock Diamonds, which is, <laughs> is, a, is a great poem. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's, um, it's the, the narrator is reflecting on um, a lost love, a man who has passed her over for another woman who he thinks um, is wealthier. And I remember um, hearing this poem and then hearing Elizabeth's uh, interpretation of it. And it was just so fascinating and more complicated and kind of stranger and darker 
<laughs> and just there was so much there to it than I think I had really expected or often think about with um, a lot of 19th century American poetry. So that was really exciting. I was initially hooked by um, Palace Burner because I just felt that it was so modern and I almost wanted to compare it to like a Fiona Apple song. Um, so I'm interested to know like how she was received in her own time. Well, you know, um, literary scholar Karen L. Kilcup has just published a recent book about the culture of reviewing in 19th century America. And um, she does treat the case of Sarah Piat in her book. And one of the things she talks about is how Sarah is consistently being judged according to standards of what women writers were expected to do or expected to talk about. And although she did get many glowing reviews, she also got quite a few reviews that complained about some of the things you're talking about, Lauren, that she was, um, she was too oblique. Um, one reviewer said she talks in a language that she's invented and she expects you to learn. You see, you see that she's getting different kinds of cultural responses. And that tells us a couple of different things. One, she's not simply playing to the audience. She certainly could have done that. Many poets did, many women poets did. She's not simply doing that. She does it in some ways and sometimes. But um, I think the important thing to say here to go to your, your very accurate observation about how modern she feels and it's one of the reasons why uh, the time is right, I think, for her to find a mass audience now is because she's very ironic. Now, um, the literary scholar, um, Paula Bennett, who published a selected edition of Sarah's poems called Palace Burner. So Lauren, that, that's one reason why that poem is so important. It's interesting that you read that one. Um, Paula Bennett has been saying since she got this edition out in 2001 that um, Sarah's signature mode as a writer is irony. And I think Bennett is correct about that. There are a number of reasons, we can talk about them in more detail about why a woman poet in the 19th century could make irony a tactical choice. Even what I was just saying about expectations for women writers so it made a lot of sense. Sarah made it work, but boy, she was an ironic person also, as I'm learning, working more and more in the biography. However, in her age, people did not have a particularly ironic sensibility. They often did not understand her irony. So she got away with a lot. And I can give you some examples. There are some great examples in poems. But the thing is, we do live in an ironic age. So when I teach Sarah now, and I mean, I don't have to be in a graduate classroom with my undergraduates who are maybe have not read poetry before, maybe don't particularly like it. Maybe they signed up for my class because they just needed one at that time of day on that day of the week. But man, they love Sarah. Um, my course evaluations often at the end of the term, there's one question that says, you know, who is your favorite author this term? 95% of the time they pick Sarah and they love her ironic voice. They totally get that. So, so what you've described, Lauren, I think is very accurate. And it's also interesting and important to understand that the way that worked in Sarah's time is very different from how it works now. It's one of the reasons she got the pushback she got 
but man, it plays great now. And it's why I, I really do have a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and energy and hope that we can actually bring Sarah into the lives of more readers because I think they're going to love her. Now, we have a lot of Irish listeners, so I was excited to see that Piat has this connection to Ireland. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's thrilling. Okay, great. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about Sarah's um, birth in antebellum Kentucky. I'm going to make my way toward Ireland chronologically, just so people understand the arc. Okay, so she's born in 1836 on a farm outside Lexington, Kentucky, um, into a comparatively well-to-do family, though not a not a super wealthy family, not like the, you know, the family of Henry Clay, but a prosperous farm. Um, okay, so that's 1836. Um, she goes to a reputable uh, high school in um, the 1850s in Newcastle, Kentucky. And, you know, a lot of young women of that age did not get a formal education. Sarah Piat was relatively well-educated for a woman of her time, even to go to a substantial, it's the equivalent of today, like a secondary school. Um, so, you know, that's the mid fifties. When she was not yet 18, she's still in Kentucky. She's not yet 18. She publishes her first poem in the Louisville Daily Journal. Now, it's important for um, our listeners to understand that the Louisville Daily Journal at that time was the most significant newspaper of the region that was then called the West. Okay, so maybe today, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of cultural position, but then this was super important. So she's being published regularly in the Louisville Daily Journal, and when she's not yet 18. Soon after, she starts getting published for a long period of time on a weekly basis in another one of the major newspapers of the age in New York called the New York Ledger. So the editors of the New York Ledger, Robert E. Bonner, and of the Louisville Daily Journal, George D. Prentice, are two of the major, most influential editors of the age, and they're both publishing Sally's poems regularly. I mean, this is huge, right? Yes, so this is part of what I mean by her, her importance and her celebrity. And I also want to flag here, it's a good time to bring it up. This is a problem that has bogged down um, the recovery of many women writers. And I want to flag it. I once read it in a 19th century review by a 19th century writer, a male writer. And when he said it, I thought, okay, this is real. We need to pay attention. And what he said was, there were problems with the reputations of women writers, making them household names and so on, because they had too many names. So you often had a first name, a middle name, a maiden name, and a married name. So I'm just going to use Sarah as an example, but this will obtain for many other women writers in terms of recovery, okay? So we're talking today about Sarah Piat, and that's what we in Piat studies call her, Sarah Piat. But when she was this famous teenage poet, she wasn't Piat yet because she wasn't married. Her last name was Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. And she didn't go by Sarah, she went by Sally. She was a famous poet published at least 150 poems 
We're still discovering new ones, so I can't give you an exact number. But she published them either under the name Sally M. Bryan, which sounds different from Sarah Piat, or she published them under her initials, SMB. So this, this whole first part of her career, which is major, is not under the name Sarah Piat. Now, that's important, too, because, for example, um, Paula Bennett's selected edition of poems that I mentioned a minute ago, which came out in 2001, and another selected edition of uh, Sarah's poems by Larry R. Michaels, which came out in 1999. These were the first two selected editions of Piat's work since her death in 1919. Happened right around the same time. But those books don't include the Sally Bryan poems. Now, Jolie um, can talk a little bit maybe uh, after I finish making my way slowly toward Ireland about what we have done at Ohio State to digitize those early poems because they're not in print. You can't get them anywhere. They're not in a book. And, and we're digitizing them free for the public. No password, you don't have to be an OSU employee or, and you can go and read them out. We're working on that. Um, and we've made a lot of progress, but okay. So, so she's got this active, very, she's got fame as a young woman in Kentucky. 1861, she marries. And one of the interesting parts of her story is she didn't marry a Kentucky guy. She didn't marry a guy from her social world in Kentucky. She married John James Piot. This is where the new extra name comes in. She becomes Mrs. Piot. Sometimes she's called Mrs. Piot, Mrs. J.J. Piot, Mrs. John James Piot, etc. But this is when she becomes Sarah Piot. She leaves Kentucky. And uh, J.J., who was from Ohio, now notice also part of this story, interesting part of the story, important part of the story. Sally's moving from a slave state to a free state. Um, one of the things Paula Bennett said about uh, Sarah that it that still holds a very apt description. She says Sarah had a borderland mentality, Kentucky, Ohio, slave free, antebellum, postbellum, United States abroad. She she's at the cusp of all these fractures um, that she lived through. So she marries in Ohio and she leaves Kentucky. JJ gets a job working for the federal government in Washington, D.C. So very early in the Civil War, the Civil War has just broken out. They get married in June 1861. They move to Washington, D.C. He's working as a clerk at the Treasury Department. And she, for the first time in her life, is keeping house. Um, and they're living in the area of what today we call Georgetown. But you know what? I don't know if we have a lot of readers out there probably who've been to uh, DC, have been to Georgetown. You can see the Confederacy from there. Like the border's right there. You know, I lived there for a few years. You could see Robert E. Lee's estate. There it is, right? Right there. <clears throat> so once again, she's at another one of these borders, right? And one of her <clears throat> um, very, very powerful poems published in 1866 is called Army of Occupation. And it's about visiting the Robert E. Lee estate, which has just become Arlington National Cemetery. So she also lived through that transition. His estate becomes, becomes a, a place to honor the, the war dead. 
Um, so they're in, they're, they're living in DC during the war. She's having her first um, babies. And uh, they did some shuttling back and forth between DC and a house they bought in North Bend, Ohio. Um, the house they bought in North Bend in the late 1860s became their primary family home, even though they continued to move around a lot, they tended to always go back there. So she lived in Kentucky, then she lived in DC during the war. Then they bought this house in North Bend. Um, JJ mostly worked for newspapers and Sarah somehow, even though she was having children every two or three years, wrote hundreds of poems. Um, somehow she managed to do this and um, JJ was also a poet. He was always struggling to get his stuff into print. You don't make money as a poet. If there are poets out there, they hear what I'm saying. Um, and they needed, uh, they needed an income. JJ tended to look for different kinds of government jobs. And so eventually what happened, he was, he was struggling in various kinds of uh, newspaper jobs and so on, but eventually he was appointed by the federal government to be the US consul in Cork, Ireland. So this was a diplomatic position. And one thing that surprises people today sometimes about this is um, to learn that it was common for literary writers to be appointed as diplomats at the time. It was a very common thing. Yeah, so one, one example, sometimes people recognize if I take them into their deep dark past in high school, when they might've had to read the Scarlet Letter, is you, you learn about the custom house. There's this, you know, the famous, I, Nathaniel Hawthorne is working in the custom house. That's another example, it's a, it's a government basically kind of a patronage position often given to literary writers. It was a way kind of honoring their cultural role. Um, so, so JJ was appointed as US Consul Cork. So they moved to Cork in 1882 and they lived in Ireland until 1893. Okay, they were there for a long time. I made a trip there about three years ago um, to try to find the house, which I did, it was super exciting. Um, and uh, the very, um, the, the last four months or so of their stay in Ireland, they, he became the consul in Dublin. So most of the time they were in the, the, the uh, town that today is um, named Cove, C-O-B-H, but at the time it was called Queenstown. So Sarah wrote lots and lots of poems about Ireland and you'll see the, the, the town name Queenstown coming up. Um, but today this is Cove in County Cork. Um, now, one important thing to say about the Irish poems, her Irish poems are absolutely amazing. And I'd be happy to talk about a couple of those if we have time. But one thing I wanna point out um, for our readers who are not in Ireland um, and who, who possibly don't know the history, this is an incredibly tumultuous time in Irish history. You know, JJ, again, as a US government official, um, Queenstown at the time was one of the major points, uh, ports of emigration. And one of JJ's roles was to oversee that process, to uh, manage the ships. And you, you, I visited the port there, you know, from which these folks were leaving for the United States, JJ was involved in the bureaucracy of that on a daily basis. It has to be something that they talked about in their marriage every day. 
And Sarah's poems during this time, when the Irish people are um, struggling to free themselves from uh, the British yoke to achieve independence, they're fighting for land rights. It's a very, very um, difficult time. And Sarah wrote um, some amazing poems about um, the subjugation of the Irish. Her political sympathies in these poems are with them, are empathic poems for them. And um, from the standpoint of the biography, one of the very interesting things you can see happening as she's confronting what's going on in Irish politics and looking at the suffering of the Irish people is, you know, I can trace in the poems and in some of her letters how her evolving understanding, she's, she's now at this time, she's born in 36, so, so she's now, you know, in her late 40s and, and early 50s. Um, and as we all do, she's, she's also looking back on her own life in a new way. And she starts to understand, she, she always wrote about caste in the antebellum South, even when she was a teenager. A lot of those poems are about social caste. Um, she starts to understand social caste in a new way through her experience in Ireland. And you can even see in the Irish poems and the Irish letters, um, she starts to think about issues of black and white in the United States in a different way as she watches what's going on between the British and the Irish. So she has this fantastic biography on top of a great body of work. Yeah, right. Yeah, look. That's what I mean when I say for, for over 50 years, she, she was at so many borderlands. She was at so many cusps, so many fractures, and she writes about all of them. So, you know, to bring her back into cultural awareness, it's such a rich body of work. And, and although she's a fantastic poet, I mean, she's really a great poet from, you know, from the artistic standpoint, but she's also right there tracking a lot of this stuff that we care so much about today. You know, gender, civil war, reconstruction. Um, the poem Jolie mentioned earlier, Mock Diamonds, I have to say that is my single favorite poem. Um, in, in literary studies, we have something that we would call the signature poem, which means the poem by which this person is best known. Now, the palace burner right now is the signature poem. I would say the, the poem in second place for a signature poem in part because it is one of her very accessible poems. It still has the irony in it, but you can read it, unlike some of her more difficult poems, you can read this one and right away you get it. Um, and this is one published in 1866 called The Fancy Ball. And the fancy ball was a term in the 19th century for basically what we would today call a costume party. Um, and the speaker of the poem, Sarah often writes in dramatic poems. This is a a form that she learned about from reading Robert Browning. So basically what that means, and if we have any listeners who aren't that familiar with poems, it, it means you have a speaker in a poem who is essentially a character. Um, they might not be identified as a character, you might not know their name, but the voice in the poem is not the autobiographical voice of the poet, it's a character voice. So the fancy ball is a woman who is talking to um, a man who's off camera and, but they're talking and it, the implication is that they're married because he seems to be in her room while she's thinking about getting dressed. 
and she's trying to choose a costume for the fancy ball. And he keeps suggesting all these costumes that are loaded with gender norms of the time. And she keeps rejecting them. Um, so this is a poem that would teach great in high schools, teaches great in college, people get it, it's current, it's relevant. So I would say the palace burner is her signature poem right now. Fancy balls coming in as a close second. Yeah, my favorite poem is Mock Diamonds, the one that Jolie mentioned earlier. And going back to my theme about how current Sarah is, one of the major themes in Mock Diamonds is that the Confederate guerrilla is not dead. Now, Jolie, what is your favorite poem? I I would say so as well. I think Elizabeth did a great job convincing me of the, of the power and complexity of that poem. And I, I think I'm also just sort of partial to the poems, Piet's poems that explore gender more generally as well. Um, you may have read enough about her to see that she has a few different categories she's working in. And um, gender and women's experiences and relationships is one of the major um, themes that she returns to a lot in her poems. Because our listeners are, you know, probably much more aware of someone like Emily Dickinson, would it be, you know, apt to say, if you like Emily Dickinson, then you should check out the work of Sarah Piat? I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. And again, you know, Dickinson, just a world-changing poet, such a fine poet, and, and you know, has changed the, the art of poetry. Um, such a profoundly influential poet and a great one. And because Dickinson is, is um, so familiar, as you say, Lauren, I think it's actually really useful and helpful to compare Dickinson and Piat. Um, I hope someday to teach a class on Dickinson and Piat side by side. Here's the big picture Dickinson people will connect with even if they haven't had a chance to read Sarah yet. Um, and I'm gonna get into this by talking briefly about um, how Dickinson first started being studied, okay? Because it wasn't always true. A lot of times people don't, don't understand that, that a poet you know, isn't born great, as I like to say. It's not like she was born and people were like, hey, that's Emily Dickinson. She's going to be a great poet. So um, very, very long story in a very short version. For a long time in literary scholarship, anything by Americans, American literature was considered to be inferior. This surprises people today, but it was the case for a very long time. I wrote an entire book about it, so it's a long story. But the point is that English departments, for example, didn't teach American literature. It was considered just to be inferior. You just That's not worth studying in college. You just read that on your own if you like that garbage, basically. So American literature does not start to get taken seriously in the United States until around World War II. Okay, so a story that will crystallize this for people easily is to say that one of the most influential books of the 20th century in literary scholarship came out in 1941, okay, again, the brink of World War II, and it was a book called American Renaissance by F.O. Matheson. That was his coinage. That later, that term American Renaissance later became the field standard for describing American literature uh, of the 1850s. 
And what Matheson said was, this is when the greatness of American literature gets started. And he treats five authors, only five authors. They're all white men. Unsur unsurprising, right? Totally unsurprising, right? But they're Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Melville, and Whitman. Okay, only one, only one poet. But this became the American canon. And that lasted for decades. So at that point, notice, Matheson didn't feel like Dickinson had to be included. He also you know, didn't include her because he mostly wanted to focus on the 1850s. And you know, Dickinson's really great year in terms of output is the early 60s. So he didn't feel she quite fit, but still, I mean, you couldn't get away with that later, you know, not including Dickinson in the study of the greats. So um, Dickinson then eventually became a major canonical writer, but she was the only woman poet in the American canon, the only one. Okay, so there were hundreds of, of women poets and many more hundreds of women writers. And as we've, we've said today that uh, this, the energy behind recovering women writers has brought back a lot of these names. But really, Emily Dickinson has remained the arch canonical American woman writer. Not only poet, but writer, okay? So put her next to Sarah and you see some very interesting things about what values used to be involved in identifying someone as great. Okay, so one is Dickinson wrote about 1800 poems. Um, we're still discovering new poems by Sarah, so we don't have an accurate count now, but Sarah wrote at least 600. Okay, so significant output. Um, Dickinson though, think of the big difference. Dickinson didn't publish. Dickinson published just a handful of poems. Sarah published hundreds and hundreds of poems, right? Like I said, newspapers, magazines, children's books. So one important thing this shows us, and it's very easy to demonstrate in the historical record. For a long time in the 20th century, the definition of literary greatness meant that you were not popular. You were not popular. And again, the, the ideology behind that, the definition of value behind that was if you were popular, it means you were being appreciated in a way that suggests that your work was not serious enough or good enough or artistic enough or literary enough and therefore not great. So to say, okay, we've now, we've now changed um, in our understandings. We no longer hold that same um, set of biases to say, put, you know, Dickinson and Sarah into dialogue. They're, they're writing during the same time. It's interesting because you have this very private sort of hermetic writer and you have Sarah who's totally out there in the public sphere. Both prolific, both great poets, contemporaries. But one interesting story about how differently they were valued by American culture in the 20th century and by the literary establishment and another one about what was their relationship to the public sphere. So it, it, makes, it makes a great contrast. Emily Dickinson is one of my favorites and obviously was extraordinarily talented. But do you think that, you know, part of the lasting allure for Dickinson is just all of that mythology surrounding her? 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, you know, one of the most revolutionary things that has happened in Dickinson scholarship recently, which also I think thickens this comparison between these two women poets is, you know, when I, when I learned Dickinson in my generation, um, we were very ironic and sarcastic about the myth about, you know, who was her lost male lover, that whole story that, you know, the biographies like to tell and tell over again. But we didn't challenge the idea that she was a hermetic poet. So the myth you're talking about, Lauren, how she basically just remained cloistered in her house, right? Um, how she was so hermetic, how her poems, in fact, were about the interior terrain of the mind and the psyche. That was the Dickinson that I learned. But, you know, we've learned um, through more recent scholarship, first of all, that, you know, how do you define hermetic? She had an extremely lively social life with her correspondence, for example. She, she sent a lot of poems to people. It was like a form of publication for her. She sent them in multiple versions, in whole or in part. I mean, she had this very active. So we do, I agree with you, Lauren, we have to push back on that myth. But at the same time, you know, scholars, um, Faith Barrett is um, someone who, who worked uh, on this idea, presented this idea, very compelling argument in her work on Civil War poets. Um, you know, she made an argument that there are poems of Dickinson's that have not heretofore been recognized as war poems that are war poems. And um, Paula Bennett, all who the, the Piat scholar I mentioned also has published on that topic. And I can't tell you, for someone of my generation who learned this other Dickinson, this is just, it's revolutionary. You look at this po these poems you thought you knew and these arguments are, uh, you know, they're, they're the, the arguments are completely persuasive and they become different poems. So then you say, okay, well, maybe Dickinson's not as hermetic as we thought. Maybe those poems are not all about the interior of the psyche. And, uh, you know, Sarah's out there writing more poems too, but she's publishing them. So it just, you know, they, our understandings of these two women keep changing as we learn more. So speaking of legacy, what are the projects that you've got going on at OSU to, you know, recover and preserve Piat's legacy? So what we're doing at OSU Libraries, um, <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll talk specifically about um, the work I've done over the past few years and my collaborations with Elizabeth. So um, I'm really focused on developing our holdings. And so that's archival materials. Um, and when I say archival, I guess I should, I should expand on that just a bit. So we have the papers of Paula Bennett and Larry Michaels, two of the P early Piat scholars. Um, but we're also actively seeking and trying to acquire materials related to Sarah Piat herself. And I'm sure Elizabeth can talk a little bit more about this, but um, I think you can probably imagine how complicated that is and if there is material and, and how rare it is to come across items like that. So over the past couple of years, we've been assembling a small collection um, and a lot of materials items related to George Prentice, um, an editor who published Sarah Piat's work and who she worked a lot with. So, um, okay, so one component is the archival collections. Um, another component is um, books and published materials. 
So we're still trying to acquire more, more of that whenever possible. Um, as I think you know, we have a pretty amazing collection that Larry Michaels donated to us. Um, so we do have materials, but we're always looking for more, especially if there's something unique um, or sort of um, different about those items. So if there's some sort of signature or inscription, um, for example, um, earlier this year, we acquired an 1860 edition of this volume, um, Poems of Two Friends by J.J. Piat, Sarah Piat's husband, and William Dean Howells. And there's a poem handwritten in the front by J.J. So when we came across that, we had to acquire it. And I, I should also mention, um, so in my position, I am responsible for um, building and maintaining our the Rare Books and Manuscripts Libraries collections from about 1800 to present. So that's a lot. Um, and I have to, <laughs> yeah, it, it truly is. So when it comes to Piat materials, I am like incredibly grateful to not just Elizabeth, but Larry and Sean Andrews, who we also work with um, and who has been fantastic in identifying items because they're, he's always come like looking for new materials, um, well, new to us, and sort of passing them along, like, do you already have this? Is this something you might be interested in acquiring? So we really have a kind of fantastic team of people who each have their own area of expertise. So um, let's see, one of the other components I wanna talk about um, that we mentioned earlier is um, our, our digital component of this project. So. Um, we have the Sarah Piat Recovery Project online. And this is an open access project where we have, I think as Elizabeth mentioned earlier, um, you can read Piat's poems that um, some of them haven't been collected in any, any sort of um, collected poems or selected poems. You can only read them in their original format. So she was publishing in the New York Ledger in this Washington DC newspaper called The Capital. So we've scanned and provided access to all of these poems um, of Piazza that you can't see in any other context. And then we're trying to continue to actively grow and expand what this project looks like. So we've also been adding oral histories. Um, Elizabeth conducted a few with um, the Piazza scholars I just mentioned, like Larry and Paula. Um, and we're also adding essays and other kinds of content as well. So it's really, we're, we're, we're really ambitious and excited about creating this resource for anyone who wants to learn about her and read her work. Is there a dream item? Is there something, you know, in particular that you're on the hunt for? Oh gosh, I, I have a feeling that oh, <laughs> Elizabeth has some um, opinion on this. I would say that, my, my dream item is something that may or may not exist. I want to see materials of Sarah Piaz. Um, so we don't quite know if we're going to find that material, but um, gosh, that would be fantastic to, to come across something like that at an auction or eBay or a donor who wants to give it to us um, because there's just so, such little left by her. Well, um, I can add a few thoughts to that, Jolie. Um... We do not yet have a first edition of every one of her books. We have most of them, we don't have all of them. So we got another one this year. Um, 
Jolie mentioned our, our uh, team member, Sean Andrus, who um, is a marketing professional out in the Cincinnati area. He, he does this project for love. Um, he is just a, 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 a firestorm of discovery. It's fantastic. And a couple of years ago, for example, Sean discovered um, really major, kind of shocking, early poems by Sally M. Bryan that nobody knew about in a rare Kentucky Baptist periodical that not a, nobody knew about those. Sean turned them up. And this was a major discovery because of, and again, I'm, I'm trying to uh, track this in the biography, we didn't know a lot about her history with churches. Um, there are two items of lore that I think are on my short list of things I would like to find. One is that, remember I mentioned her first poem in the Louisville Daily Journal appears when she is not yet 18. The lore is that her very first published poems appeared in Texas that she had a relative there who sent them to a local newspaper and that they were published probably in the Galveston area. I, I have searched whatever um, digitized newspapers I can find in Texas at that time and I cannot find anything, but many of those newspapers didn't survive. So it's uncertain, but again, it, those in, if the lore is correct, those could be her very first published poems and we have no idea what they were. Um, and, you know, Sarah herself, we have, we have letters that Sarah wrote. We have far more letters that her husband wrote. So in some cases, you have to see what's going on in their family life through his version of the story. And, and he might say, Sally said this, or Sally thinks that. But we have, we have fewer documents of hers, aside from the hundreds of poems and whatever record they provide, than we have letters of other family members. Um, you know, if, if Sally kept a journal, I haven't seen any indication in letters yet that, that she had one, they were reputed to have lost, um, through robbery or other forms of destruction, several trunks of personal papers. So we probably have just lost a lot. Um, but there are some, uh, again, and this goes back to the fact that since no one heard of Sarah Piat, no one had any reason to collect her. We, we are now collecting her, but a lot of the stuff that I've needed to consult for my biography means going to archives all over the place because they essentially have someone else's letters and she's got a couple letters in there, um, right? So one of our jobs, as Jolie was saying, was try to aggregate all this stuff um, and, and house it at Ohio State. Can you tell me a little bit about the experience that you've had writing the first Sarah Piat biography and how that's maybe made you reevaluate some of her work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. I love it. It's um, I, I am absolutely um, committed to the project. I love doing it. I, I feel it's a contribution I can make. You know, I'm so I'm so um, dedicated to bringing Sarah back to attention. So um I, I can talk about any parts of it you might want to hear more about, Lauren, but basically what I have been doing is I've been on the hunt. I've been on the hunt for things. I've been looking in collections and visiting places where I know she was. Um, she's a poet who in many ways writes about places. 
So as I said, I did go to Ireland three years ago and I, I will definitely go back once the world opens up again. Um, and part of what I wanted to do there was I wanted to visit the places that she had written poems about. And you do understand the poems in a different way when you see, see the place. So one example is a poem she wrote about the Rock of Cashel. Um, and going uh, back to the, my Game of Thrones banner here behind me in my office, I mean, you know, it, this absolutely majestic ancient structure, the Rock of Cashel. Um, but you go there and you understand the poem differently. The, the poem describes the vista from the Rock of Cashel, which is at, on an elevation. And Sarah, you know, one of the things that's compelling about Sarah, um, and this is, this is a way her voice differs from some of the other recovered writers we've talked about. Sarah never lets herself off the hook. What I mean by that is she calls out her society and all kinds of things that are troubling. Um, she does that repeatedly. It's her, it's her critical voice. She often does it with irony because of course she's getting these things published and um, she's got to manage the public sphere. But she never puts herself in a, in a superior position. She never presents herself as better. She never presents herself as, um, as better than the people she's criticizing. She criticizes things, but in one way or another, she talks about her own complicity. So if you go back, Lauren, you mentioned that you like the palace burner, you know, and the palace burner, for those of you who maybe haven't read it yet, it's, it's about um, a mother of a young child in the United States. And this is one of many poems by Sarah where it has a lot of autobiographical content in it, herself and, and her young son. It's a, it's a woman in the United States hanging around with her son and they're, they're, look, they're doing something a lot of mothers and children did at that time, which is they're looking through old periodicals in their house. People saved them and they often clipped them and pasted them in scrapbooks and things like that. And so they're looking at some of these recent publications and the little boy gets attracted to an illustration in the newspaper of a woman in France who is about to be executed. She's surrounded by bayonets. And this is a woman, the title of the poem, The Palace Burner, who was involved in a communist uprising in, in Paris in 1871. And um, they have now been squelched and the communards are being executed. And there's this picture of this woman in France. She's surrounded by bayonets. First of all, anyone who's a parent can relate to this. She's got to somehow explain this to the kid who's like, I like this picture, don't you? Um, so it's one of many poems where she presents a mother-child dynamic where they're talking from completely different perspectives to one another, and the mother's trying to navigate that. But in that poem, she just, she's very disturbed by the fact that this woman, who was also probably a mother, is going to her death for her ideals while she sits comfortably in her living room. That's a good example of what I mean by she does not let herself off the hook. You know, I mentioned earlier Mock Diamonds, uh, where I said the gorilla, the Confederate gorilla is not dead. And um, this is another way that, that Sarah, when she, she calls out things that she sees happening in her social world, but does not let herself off the hook. In that poem, this is a reconstruction poem. She encounters this guy, uh, she goes back home 
after the war. She goes back to the South after the war with her husband, who is Northern. And she's basically trying to interpret for her husband, this is where I grew up. And here are some of the things that happened here. And she runs into this guy who is her old boyfriend. Um, and he's a Confederate guerrilla. And she, you know, she manages to make the poem when you first read it, it's very entertaining. At its first level, it's entertaining. It's like a soap opera. Here I am with my husband. I'm running into all my old boyfriends. He keeps asking me who they are and she keeps lying. <laughs> you know, the speaker is a liar. She's, she's minimizing how many guys she was in love with before she married him. But then she runs into the gorilla. And um, when, I, when I talk about the issue of complicity and now this is a woman living in post-bellum Ohio during reconstruction and she's meditating on her youth in a slave-owning state, okay? And the thing, remember I said she's a liar to her husband about her old boyfriends? They run into the gorilla. The, the husband says, this guy looks like he's in the Klan. And she's again minimizing, like, oh no, I'm sure that, yeah, he just didn't want the war to end. She's making all these excuses. But what she confronts finally in that poem is that um, she still loves him. She's disturbed by it. She's disturbed to discover the power he still has over her now. My students really like the, the, the drama there, the interpersonal drama with the husband and the old boyfriend. And I always say to them, this is the poem of your high school reunion. Like you'll go there with your spouse and you'll run into all your old, you know, hookups and, and uh, it, you know, they see there's comedy in it. There's comedy, but at the other level, it is so serious and it is so searing. And um, the, in the bigger picture, what she's doing in that poem is she is calling out the romance of the antebellum South. She refers in the poem to the South as a land of quote, and this is in the poem, insolent, false glory. But e yeah, exactly. But even though it's insolent and false, and she knows that, you see, she's still acknowledging the appeal. I went back there and it's still called to me. And she gets that out of the boyfriend figure, right? So um, yeah, intense poems, serious poems, and very, very complex in their emotional dynamics. Has there been a particular mystery related to Sarah that you've been trying to solve for your biography? Okay, so Sarah wrote a poem called The Black Princess. Uh, again, it was published during Reconstruction. Um, and this poem is about a woman that Sarah describes as, quote, my mother's nurse and mine. This was an enslaved woman. And we know through Sarah's own description, which I just quoted, that this enslaved woman was her mother's nurse um, and then became her nurse. We also know from several poems Sarah wrote about her that Sarah, now again, Sarah's ideologically, she is ideologically white. She's, she's wrapped up and trapped in an ideology of whiteness. She's a child of two slave-owning families. 
there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship on um, enslavement and enslaved people, especially in recent years, that's transforming a lot of what we understand. And um, one of the things that uh, historians keep reminding us is to see through the white romances about slavery. Okay, now Sarah, from her perspective, wrapped up in this ideology of whiteness, Sarah believed that she loved this woman and that this woman loved her. Okay, so I need to retell that story. Um, but I'm trying to find the woman. And the records, it's, it's hard. I mean, I've made a certain amount of progress, again, by using the tax records. Um, often since, since enslaved people are not listed with names, I'm working with years and ages to try to figure out which of these people could possibly be she. So that's another thing. I, I, my dream in the biography is to be able to tell more of this woman's story. I keep hoping that there's going to be a letter or something that gives me more details than I have right now. So I really want to visit the OSU library and check out the Piat collection, but what else might I find when I get there? Yes, thank you for asking. So before I get to that, I want to mention, since I've talked a lot about um, building the collections, I just want to make a point of saying, um, just so it's really clear that um, we're not just building the collections just so we have them. We really want them to be used. So um, each semester, um, we make sure like students come in, we have a classroom off of our reading room where classes come in and get to have like hands-on opportunities of working directly with materials and the PIAT materials often get used as well as part of that. Um, in addition to being open to researchers, we actually are just open to the local community as well. So anyone can come in and use any material in our reading room. Um, so we, we really want to make sure that we're building a collection that is not just you know a, a, a prize to have, but is actively being used and people are working with it and, and getting the most out of it. So having said that, um, I'll actually answer your question, which um, so you asked about um, other collections we have that readers might be, sorry, listeners might be interested in. Um, so a couple come to mind. We have the papers of writer Jessica Mitford, who um, I think perhaps is best known for her um, memoir, Hans and Rebels, uh, published in 1960. And it's about her um, early years and upbringing in a British aristocratic, very interesting, unusual family. Um, and we, she also, I think, is well known for um, her 1963 book, An American Way of Death, um, which was um, sort of a, a really shocking expose of the funeral industry uh, in the United States. So she was born in Britain and then um, moved to the US as an adult and worked as an investigative journalist. So we have her papers um, documenting these two books and other books and projects um, and correspondence um, all kinds of really fascinating things about her professional and personal life. Um, so another, yeah, I, it's really, really cool. Um, one other collection that um, we've talked a bit about how um, sometimes it's hard to find women writers or women 
um, because they're kind of buried within other larger archival collections that have a man or family name. So one collection that comes to mind as an example of this that I think your writer, your listeners may be interested in is um, we have the papers of a writer named Nelson Algren, um, who is perhaps best known for his novel, The Man with the Golden Arm. Um, and he had a relationship starting in the 1940s um, throughout the to the early 1960s with um, Simone de Beauvoir. So we have their letters over a long period of years, um, which are just fascinating to read through. One of my favorite items in that collection is um, a diary they both kept together during one summer when she came to visit him in Chicago. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really amazing to look through. Um, like there's this one entry that comes to mind where um, they're both writing about like the movies that they saw that, that day. And, and she's like, I liked it, but you had other opinions. And it's just such a different side of this important intellectual figure that we don't necessarily often get to see. Any dream acquisitions that you're on the hunt for right now? That list is pretty long. <laughs> um, I would say that um, one of the reasons I'm really excited to work with um, Elizabeth and the Larry and Sean um, on building our Serapia collection is because it's really important to me to actively work toward diversifying our holdings at the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library. We have like really fantastic collections, but the collections that are the largest that we're the best known for are the papers of Raymond Carver, the papers of William S. Burroughs, um, James Thurber. These are incredibly important writers, but um, we, we hold predominantly white male writers. Um, so I'm always looking for archival material that um, is, is, is having a, you know, lets us see a different point of view, a different experience. I'm really committed to building our zine collections. Um, and there's a few different reasons for that. Those teach really well. Um, students love working with them and you can use them in a lot of different ways within the classroom. Um, but also they're really affordable. Um, <laughs> and that's been a great way to think about how to diversify the collections, how to get other voices and experiences that are maybe absent from mainstream media um, in, into the collections um, in a way that is sustainable and you know, accessible and affordable. And we are back. Now, can I just say that I am really, really looking forward to Elizabeth Ranker's book, and I really hope it leads to a revival of Sarah Piat's work. Um, unfortunately, there are not a ton of Piat collections out there, but I do highly recommend The Palace Burner, The Selected Poetry of Sarah Piat, edited by Paula Bennett, which gives you a lot of the history and context that you need to understand her work. But... Um, I also think that, you know, Piat deserves a lovely little gift book edition, Dickinson style, you know? So get on that. I People love like Persephone Emily Dickinson and... gift book edition I know. of poetry. <laughs> I do too. I have this like really cute little pink hardcover that I love. It's like pocket size. Anyway. <laughs> 
Uh, I loved the point that Professor Renko is making um, that Pierre is not playing to the audience and that there are mm-hmm. all of these complicated responses to her work. Um, I think that not always, but often we do come across writers who are very much writing to their audience. You know, it happens a lot mm-hmm. when we read Alcott's work and that can be hard when you're trying to marry up someone's writing with what you believe to know about their ideals or mm-hmm. like their lifestyle choices. Totally. Or, you know, with their opinions. And I think irony is something that we really grapple with because when something is so black and white, when it is like ink on paper, it's just so easy to read something and not take irony into account. We know it happens yeah. a lot with Austin. And mm-hmm. so I guess what I am saying is that one of the things I really liked hearing about Piat is that I can relate to her just through how I feel about other authors. I shouldn't admit to that, should I? It's like, no. I like that she reminds me of things that I've learned about other people. <laughs> I um kind of along the same lines, um, what I like about Piat is when I read her poems, they do feel like song lyrics to me. And actually, um, I know I mentioned Fiona Apple in the interview, but maybe a better a better person would be Jenny Lewis. Jenny who, Lewis, as you know, yeah, is my favorite. <laughs> but Jenny also is very ironic. But you can hear that in the mute, like she uses like the music and obviously her tone of voice to like to convey that. Um, so you could easily miss that if you were just looking at naked lyrics which is what yeah. i feel like is happening when you're you're looking at piat's poetry i hope jenny lewis appreciates how much she comes up on this dang show i i do too <laughs> jenny are you listening knock twice so we would like to hear what you guys think we will be posting some of piat's poems on our social media channels as well as links to the sarah piat recovery project at osu um, to find those social media channels, what do the people have to do, Hannah? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com and you can find our Facebook group by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. <laughs>